0: Hello and welcome to the 68th episode of Egg Timer Philosophy. Today's episode will cover Karl Marx's idea of relative deprivation. This particular idea of relative deprivation gets a lot less attention than many of Marx's other more often discussed ideas, such as his labor theory of value, his theory about private property and alienation from labor, and of course, his views about communism. The attention given to Marx typically center around his ideas about economics, labor, and political structure. The other major themes that sometimes get serious attention are his views towards materialism and his views about species being that relate with the nature of people. But what often gets neglected are Marx's keen psychological insights. Relative deprivation falls into this last category. Marx's best description of relative deprivation is found in chapter six of his essay, Wage, Labor, and Capital. That essay does set the stage for Marx's most influential work, Das Kapital. To quote Marx directly here, a house may be large or small, as long as the neighboring houses are likewise small, it satisfies all the social requirement for a residence. But let there arise next to the little house a palace, and the little house shrinks to a hut. The little house now makes it clear that its inmate has no social position at all to maintain or but a very insignificant one. And however high it may shoot up in the course of civilization, if the neighboring palace rises in equal or even in greater measure, the occupant of the relatively little house will always find himself more uncomfortable, more dissatisfied, more cramped within his four walls. What's enlightening about Marx's idea is that the house or hut itself did not change at all in any physical or material way, but its value or worth to the person who occupies it changes substantially as their position to others in a relative sense changes. The house is fine so long as it is suitably comparable with other houses near it. But the moment the palaces went up, or the palace around the house went up, it became a hut. The house lost its value, not because of any changes to it. The roof didn't cave in, but because it became a much worse thing relative to other things that it's now being compared with. The deprivation here is a relative one, not an objective one. It's a psychological and historical type of deprivation. With Marx's example of the house or hut in mind, we can apply this notion of relative deprivation to many aspects of life. It helps explain why you will commonly find people who make very good salaries at jobs, which they generally enjoy, but are still miserable and bitter at work. Why? Well, let's think of an example here. Let's say Susan makes $100,000 a year at a job that she generally enjoys. Her salary affords her a very high standard of living, and her compensation is in line with industry standards. The problem for Susan is that Sally, who Susan views as an awful employee in person and, his, her, and his also her coworker, makes twice this. Susan feels relatively deprived, not because of her salary as an objective fact, but she has to go to work every day, and she's upset with the idea that a much worse employee is making twice as much what she does. There's a lesson in here towards employers that think, that think simply paying people more will make them happier and more productive at work. That just isn't the case if the person paid more still feels relative deprivation. I mean, we'll all take the raise, and in the short term, it might make us happier and even more productive at work. But if afterward, we still feel a sense of unfairness via relative deprivation, it probably won't lead to more happiness or more productivity in the workplace once the impact of that raise loses its luster. People are often more psychologically attached to a principle than they are some objective measure. Consider how the psychological reaction of relative deprivation is closely linked with the principle of equal pay for equal work. It's the violation of that principle that upsets Susan on a normal basis. She does much more work than Sally and she gets paid much less than Sally you can double both their salaries, and that sense of violation won't go away. The ability to experience relative deprivation seems to be a necessary precursor to a principle like equal pay for equal work. And both ideas could have deep evolutionary roots in humans and other primates for that matter. If you've never seen it before, do a quick Google search for for the phrase, monkey throws a cucumber. You'll get to see some very cute capuchin monkeys demonstrating exactly what relative deprivation looks like. One of your top searches should be a roughly three-minute YouTube video with the well-known primatologist Franz de Waals describing the following experiment. Two capuchin monkeys who can see each other through their cages, they get a reward when they hand over a rock to the experimenter. When they're both given cucumber for the same task, everything is just fine. But the researcher mixes it up. She starts to give one of the monkeys a grape for the same task. Well, the other monkey sees this, checks his rock to make sure he's doing things right, and again, he's given a cucumber for this task. Now he's mad. He wants a grape. These, these particular monkeys prefer grapes over cucumbers. He's doing the same work as the other monkey and wants to be equally compensated for it. The relative deprivation experienced actually causes this monkey to throw the cucumber right back at the researcher. In an act of protest, the monkey gives up perfectly good food because he feels cheated. He knows that he he deserves the grape that is being withheld from him. Taking relative deprivation seriously demonstrates that psychological forces can't be ignored when thinking about broader economic and political questions. Join me again next week for another episode focusing on a psychological theme from Marx, his idea of false consciousness. Until then, wishing you good philosophical vibes.